Welcome to the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I'm Sam Marks. And I'm Johnny FD. We're self-made entrepreneurs who invest our own money and use modern technology to invest like a boss. Join us each week for exclusive interviews with our network of modern investors, business owners, and multimillionaires to discover new ways to invest our hard-earned cash. Hey everyone, this is Johnny, and welcome to episode 22 of the Invest Like a Boss podcast. Back with Sam Marks, and I'm so excited that this week we have the CEO of Betterment coming on. Yeah, me too. This is a, a highly anticipated episode, and I gotta say, you know, robo investing—that term alone was one of the things that excited us to start this podcast. What is robo investing? Yeah, so John Stein. The founder and CEO of Betterment is such an amazing guy with such a such a crazy story that I hope he gets into because it's one of those things where I really believe that you know the the terms of Betterment and investing Betterment these are things that you know we can discuss after this episode you know because you know obviously he's the founder and CEO of, of the company so he's obviously going to have great things to say so me and you can kind of deep dive into that a little bit more but I mm-hmm. think you can learn so much about someone based on who they are and their story so I, I'm, I'm really excited for you to ask him those type of questions even more than like, like, like the numbers because the numbers you know are pretty transparent we can just look on the site and see mm-hmm. what the fees are and uh, what the possible returns are things like that yeah definitely and he's a I mean I've looked at a bunch of interviews that he's been in he's He's much, very much in the public eye, and and I really appreciate that about people in these new, or especially directors in these new fintech companies, to come on and really explain this stuff in layman's terms, express why they started these companies and and how they work. And he's everywhere on the web and uh, and doing a lot of interviews to tell his story, and I think that's really important, especially for you know people like us that we're trying to figure out. And navigate these new platforms, these new ways of investing. Uh, and John seems like a very charismatic guy, and he's always willing to tell a story. So we're we're excited to bring him on the show and talk about it. Yeah. So let's get him on. Let's kind of figure out. You know, let's find out his his personality uh, and his background, how he started, why he started Betterment, and then mm-hmm. you know, me and you, you know, we can deep dive in uh, the rest of it on our own time. Yeah, definitely. And you remember in an episode with Meb Faber, he was talking about how much he liked Betterment, um, especially in the, the robo-advisory uh, category. And I believe they've, they've recently done a deal together. But um, yeah, we're, we're definitely going to dive into, you know, he, he seems like a really passionate guy. I'm, I'm itching to get a, a feeling of why they started Betterment and, um, you know, what his background was before he started Betterment. So I hope everyone enjoys this episode. Everybody, welcome back to another episode of Invest Like a Boss. Today, we have John Stein, a very popular CEO of Betterment, a platform that's pioneering robo-investing and, of course, a listener of favorites. John, greetings and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. And I believe we also have Danielle there, your colleague. Hi, yes. Okay, just wanted to make sure we include you. And you guys are in one of our favorite cities of New York, I believe. You got it. We're on 23rd Street, uh, just near Madison Square Park. Lovely. Really nice. And you've been there for quite a bit of time, haven't you? Yeah, so uh, we started the company here uh, many, many moons ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is our third office. Actually, maybe fourth if you count my apartment. Uh, But we, uh, we were in Union Square and in Soho and now up here in, uh, in what we call the Flatiron. And have you, were you in New York before Betterment? Yeah, I, I've been in New York really uh, since college, more or less. I've been here for, I guess, 13 years now, something like that, 14 years. Uh, I, I lose track. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I live on the Lower East Side. I love it. I love New York. It's, it's, it's home. Man, it must be such a cool experience to, uh, to run such a popular fintech company in New York City. It's pretty incredible. It's so fun. I feel really lucky. Uh, 
you know, um, sometimes people say, you know, things move so fast. Uh, I try to really uh, enjoy things as, as they go. I think enjoying the journey is, is an important part of my, my philosophy. Yeah, definitely. So I imagine that you, you stay quite busy with all the, the press and, and everybody in finance and in tech in, in uh, New York City trying to speak with you and collaborate and everything else that goes on. Yes, uh, Danielle and, and the rest of our comms team keep me pretty busy with, <laughs> with interviews and and uh, I, I love that stuff. You know, I, I, I certainly had never done it before Betterment, but I've come to really enjoy uh, telling uh, the Betterment story and because and, mm-hmm. uh, I think there's so many interesting things happening in this space. Uh, and, uh, and, and I want to be sure, because it's complicated stuff oftentimes, I want right. to be sure that we give it, you know, appropriate airtime. Right, yeah, we love it. I've seen a lot of your interviews and, man, we have so many questions for you. You're really inspiring guy. Your story is amazing. And so many of our listeners are either running their own business or aspiring. And, you know, I think your story, even more so than the platform that you've built, which is incredible, and we all want to learn about how to invest in better, smarter, and more modern ways. But your story is so good that we'd love to hear more about how Betterment got started, your passion, and, and what drove you into this this category to begin with. Yeah, I mean, it's a, I, I can tell the long version or the short version, but you'll have to cut me off. Um, no, ram, ramble on. We like to ramble. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, you know, I, I think uh, the story begins in, in college for me, really, when I, I studied uh, economics uh, and, and a bunch of psychology as well, but majored in economics. And I loved the intersection of those two fields, uh, what we might call behavioral economics mm-hmm. today, uh, because it was about how people make decisions and how we can help them make better decisions. And if we could just make better decisions, the world would be a better place. That's what economics taught me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, there, and and the idea of efficiency uh, became important to me at that time, and looking for ways to uh, to, to help people be more efficient in, in in their daily lives might lead to more happiness. Um, I just I, I got into this, and there's not an obvious career in you know helping people make better decisions. That's not a thing you can apply to. So uh, you know I, I was a little bit lost after college, and I I thought about being a doctor. Um, I I actually did a post back pre-med year thought about applying to med schools Mm -hmm. I love the science of it I couldn't really get into working in the hospital or working in the bio labs it just something about it you know I didn't like blood I didn't like that it's a little too real (laughs) right and I I felt like I wanted to do something that scaled better somehow like like what I loved about medicine was the idea that you can help people every day you know you get a good satisfaction from that you're working with other smart people but I, you know, when I was in the hospital, I wanted to be running the hospital because mm-hmm. I saw so many inefficient things. And I just thought this place, you know, it needs help more systematically. And so I decided business was a better career for me. Of course, I didn't know what business meant. I was just kind of like, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but both, both my parents had, had been uh, city planners. And, and so I, you know, I, I knew a lot about uh, maps and, or, and urban design and stuff like that, but not so much business. And I decided to move to New York and look around. And one of my friends was working at a consulting firm, consulting to banks. And he seemed like one of my happiest friends. I mean, he was working and uh, and traveling a lot, uh, working hard, but really loving it, getting to meet with senior execs and working on interesting stuff. And so I applied and, and got a job at, at First Manhattan. And it was great. I learned so much about the banking industry. We covered uh, all financial services companies. We did things like 
product development, risk management, mm-hmm. investment portfolio policy. And while I was there, I just became, I got really into, uh, well, I got really into Excel, to be honest. You know, I got, just, I got really good at Excel, models. like just, just numbers and algorithms and calculations. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and like, and pulling together vast amounts of information and, mm-hmm. and making a simple presentation out of it. So, you know, for instance, is, we built like a you know a complex uh, mortgage pricing model for for a bank or uh, you know a, a deposit product and all of it would come out into like a simple user interface and I really I liked doing that I liked making simple user interfaces and I learned to program a little bit uh, in you know you, you do a little VBA uh, mm-hmm. if you're if you're coordinating mm-hmm. across uh, Excel and because I was doing that. Uh, there's kind of a dual track to the story at this point because you know part part of me um, and I'll come back to that but uh, you know part of me just wanted to improve on on what I was seeing at the banks I uh, you know in my in my personal life I was investing I found that to be uh, an interesting thing although mm-hmm. uh, over time I, I grew a little bit uh, tired of managing my investments it uh, I was busy at work. Uh, I knew what I should be doing, and yet I was doing some stupid stuff on the side. You know, I was like, of course, I had you know like some some good uh, like Vanguard uh, ETFs, and I was you know uh, managing those. But you know, like like I kind of famously bought Enron. Um, you know, it was one of my first um, <laughs> stock buys, and it went, of course, straight down. Well, you got to take you got to take a couple big risks to balance out the uh, the Vanguard <laughs> ETFs, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. So you know, I was investing and uh, and and learning about banks and I got my CFA uh, just because I thought that would be a good thing I decided mm-hmm. to go to business school and I when I went to business school uh, I knew at that time that I wanted to start a company and, mm-hmm. and I knew um, that what I'd seen at the banks what I would learned was that they weren't paying a lot of attention to product innovation they were iterating on the things that they had you know here's a different interest rate on the same deposit account or you know here's a, a mobile check capture but it's still basically the same the same account i wanted to really rethink what financial services could be for people starting from a customer perspective and i i thought you know people don't naturally think hey should i open a roth ira or a traditional ira that's not mm-hmm. really the way they're approaching it they're thinking you know, I've got to send a couple kids to college, and I've got to retire, and uh, and I want to, uh, you know, have a steady stream of, of income and happiness in my life. And mm-hmm. how do I kind of manage those things? They, I, I thought that I wanted more advice, and as and, and people were coming to me for advice, and uh, and I thought it's it's crazy that that no product just does this for me, that nothing manages my investments in an intelligent way, and 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 I didn't know exactly what form that would take, but I wanted to work on that and build that thing. And uh, and because I had a little bit of the programming skill, I thought I can build it. I'm just going to go and do it. And I started to teach myself uh, some Flash. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a roommate who was an engineer at Google at the time while I was in business school, and he uh, was, you know, fortunately, you know, he he, he put me in the right direction from an engineering perspective mm-hmm. and uh, and I got started uh, uh, just building the first iteration of, of the website at that time thinking I would just do everything myself is this becoming betterment's first office in your apartment mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I love it this was uh, this was back in 2000 
uh, 2008 or so. Oh, wow. Okay. So we're going back about eight years. And I, I don't want to skip too far ahead, but you were at TechCrunch, uh, TechCrunch Disrupt as a finalist in, was it 2010 or something? You got it. Okay. Uh, 2010, May, we launched. It was the first TechCrunch Disrupt in New York. It felt really well-timed because mm-hmm. you know we didn't have a budget to, to take the team to California had it been out there. Um, and it was just, it was, it was that forcing mechanism that we needed to get the product out the door we could have uh, we could have iterated and refined it you know for another year probably but um, we had this deadline and so everything had to be working on the day that that we launched I, uh, and and you know we went out on that day to 20,000 uh, people watching the, the the live stream and maybe 2,000 people in the room and it was it was the most terrifying and and wonderful day of my life up, up to that point that's awesome had you ever spoke in front of such a large group before that Never, and I wasn't a natural public speaker. You know, I was. Uh, it was. It was really intimidating to me. I, now I, I love it, but I didn't know what I was doing. I, I memorized my entire speech. You know, I would never do that now. I would just kind of wing it. But <laughs> you know, I had every word planned, and um, it was. Uh, uh, it was a nerve-wracking experience. So by the time you got to TechCrunch Disrupt, were you was the system already managing your personal money? It was, as I recall it, that February or so. We started putting, and maybe we had tested things earlier, but we really started putting real money on the system mm-hmm. early in the year, and and those early accounts. You know, back in, in, in that at that time, uh, we we built everything, right? We we built this whole system from scratch, and every penny had to reconcile, and, and we were moving money and all this stuff, all these integrations. I, we probably wiped the system a couple of times as, as we were rebuilding it, but as if there are records in the system as of February from from the the team all investing our money. And uh, and we continued to then bring on a few family and friends, but we had probably less than uh, uh, 30 customers uh, mm-hmm. on the day that we launched. And then we had another 500 customers join us that week. Very cool. I bet you guys had a lot of fun back in your apartment, coding this up, putting your actual money to work, and then taking it to the uh, to the public viewing. It was uh, it was so thrilling to have people actually coming online it was uh you know so much work goes into it and then mm-hmm. oh, oh my goodness it's it's working but we were almost you know we were so busy i we, we were actually fielding customer service calls while um i was on stage i mean the rest of the team was in the audience answering emails and, <laughs> and helping people sign up and all this kind of stuff uh they were watching but it was uh it was like all hands on deck after that and uh, we're straight back to the office and you know back then um we were i was we all were answering the the customer the customer support calls um and that was uh uh you know the next two years of my life was kind of the story of digging out from under that yeah, I think that, you know, one of the things we see kind of across the globe is too many startups today don't do that stuff because they're they're a little bit spoiled with, with VC money and everything at an early stage. And there's so much value to be had from answering and running your customer service yourself as the co-founder because you really see what's happening on an everyday basis, what the feedback is. It's just a constant loop of, of information you need to make decisions at an, an early stage. Wouldn't you agree? I absolutely agree. I, I think that's a, a, an insightful observation and, and well said. We still have uh, everyone here at the company, and there's uh, over 200 of us now, mm-hmm. 
uh, everyone talks to customers and, and we call it customer week. We do it, you know, it's a rotating basis. Um, I do it quarterly and we just, you know, we get on the phones for, for the week and we're answering emails and live chats and all the ways our customers talk to us. But it's such, it's just one of my favorite things. And I always come out of it thinking, oh, I want to do more of this. It's so important to connect with your customers and to hear firsthand what they are coming to you for, what uh-huh. their problems are, because you get, you know, you get uh, a, a few months removed from that. And you get too much in your own head. You start thinking about the things that you want or uh, the things that you heard about from somebody else in the company. It's so important to go back to the source, which is is the customer. Very good practice and great advice for, for everyone out there that's in business and running their own business or aspiring to have their own startup. And John, I wanna, before you ever started managing your money, through the platform, did you ever try using like an actual financial advisor, someone that was a fiduciary or just helping you pick stocks or was it all done by yourself? My parents have a financial advisor and and he's, he's a family friend and someone I trust and he also managed, uh, because he managed my parents' accounts, uh, was, was willing to, to manage my money. I don't think I had enough money independently. To, I'm sure I didn't have enough money right. independently get any advice. And I did that for a while. I kind of transitioned away from it, right? I started doing some of my own things. And then I just decided at some point I wanted to do all of my own things because the fees uh, didn't make sense to me. And the the way that I wanted my money managed was uh, was was a little bit different. I wanted things like uh, well, what Betterment offers. Frankly, um, I wanted it um, broadly diversified and tax managed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wanted better information about it, and I wanted it based on d- different goals and so on. But I I knew that the incumbent firms, um, you know, uh, uh, weren't going to build those kinds of tools any, anytime soon. They're just set up for a very different type of business. Yeah, I agree totally. I think your story of investing and and some of mine I was also investing very little money in college and same situation my parents had an advisor and they kind of grandfathered in a little bit of money for me and I always kind of thought and my parents told me like half the value in having an advisor is so that they can help you make smart decisions in emotional markets and then everyone from my mom dad grandma sister everyone sold at the bottom in 2007 2008 when the market was at its absolute worst, when it was probably the advisor's job at that time more than any to help us, you know, make smart decisions, and we didn't, and we didn't make it. And I think after that it was really when kind of opened at least my eyes to you have to take a lot of this stuff into your own hands or find smarter ways to do it. Of course, I was still in college, so I wasn't thinking that as much as an entrepreneur or um, or an innovator. But but I think a lot of people, especially people, listeners, this audience have lived through that and were probably at an early stage of investing through that and are now all thinking of how to take the emotional side out of investing as, as much as we can. Yeah, I, that narrative uh, resonates with me. I've, I've likewise heard customers say, that in a in a downturn, some some customers might maintain a, an account at Merrill or something like mm-hmm. this. And in a downturn, I've heard them say, "Oh yeah, like the broker called me and talked to me about how I should reposition uh, my account for the downturn," which is kind of the opposite <laughs> of the narrative that you sometimes hear, which is that, "Oh yeah, the broker is supposed to tell you to stay the course and and not you know not not right. panic a downturn. They're calling just to to make you trade." I think that that narrative uh, of what how advisors or, or brokers help clients uh, is a little bit tired, and it, it, in some ways, it doesn't give the advice. It doesn't give advice or advisors enough credit. It uh, to, to to speak about oh well, we we hold your hand during rocky markets. 
our data and our experiences, that's not really what customers need most. Mm -hmm. um, customers, our customers anyway, understand that there's volatility. They understand that you know, in the long run, you're, um, th things are going to go up and down, but mm -hmm. uh, you're going to be better off if you're broadly diversified and so on. What they are looking for is, uh, is planning and advice around life changes. So uh, it may not be that the market's down, but it may be, oh, um, you know, uh, I'm getting married and I, I'm thinking about uh, joint accounts. Like, what's the right way to set this up? Um, should I think about trust accounts for my kids? Uh, there are all kinds of real important life questions, and those are times, those are moments when, when people seek advice, and that's the kind of advice that we provide at Betterment. We tend to automate the uh, information about the markets and, uh, and give you information in real time uh, that helps you make, hopefully, the right decision, which is almost always to, to stay the course during rocky market times. Great stuff. Good to hear. And what happens after TechCrunch Disrupt? You guys are on the phones, call, get, signing up a lot of people. I assume that that really was a big jump in your guys' business and uh, customer acquisition. What happens over the next few years in terms of Betterment's growth and, and infrastructure? So for a couple of years there in the early days, we're really, we're really just digging out. We have uh, always ambitious plans for what we want to do with this company, still, still to this day, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, perhaps more ambitious than ever, and uh, and 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 yet you know we're we're at that time five people in a room, and uh, and there's only so much we can do. So we're kind of treading water and building uh, building what what we can to automate the the back end, so that we can spend more time investing in in services for for customers and hiring and, and building a company and all the things that mm -hmm. uh, that we want to do. We grew uh, slowly in those early days. It took us, you know, uh, we had a million dollars maybe by the end of the first month, a million dollars in deposits, mm -hmm. which is like, you know, I, I don't know, at the time a million dollars seemed like a lot of money. And I remember the end of the first year uh, or so, we crossed over $10 million. And wow, you know, we, we were so happy. We went out to dinner. That was, that was so, and <laughs> Hy now that's hyper growth. <laughs> that's like a, a, a slow day. Right. Right. <laughs> right. That's like, so, uh, so things have obviously accelerated a lot. At that time, uh, growing the team was, was so much of, of my job. And gosh, we were, a, we were a family. Awesome. I, th I think that's also really good advice and good perspective that when you went from 1 million to 10 million in deposits, it seemed like you had this, this, I mean, and by, by all means, it was a fast growing business. But then once you, you fast forward to where you guys are at today, and then that would be considered a slow day. A lot of people don't understand the scale of globalization and the scale of fintech businesses or any type of internet businesses and how fast you can go from even, even let's not say uh, fintech, but an e-commerce store can go from five sales a day to 5,000 in a day in a month. And having that perspective that you have is, is pretty much is, is invaluable in terms of experience for business. Yeah. I, I think we are still just getting started. I mean, I think our, our current scale um, is obviously uh, you know a couple orders of magnitude beyond mm -hmm. where, where we were even even two or three years into the business uh, but like I said we're, we're ambitious and we know that 
that that there are many millions of people who want our services, and uh, we've got a long way to go to, uh, to to reach all of them. So, what is your guys' position on active versus passive? I know you have so much data and so much research at your company, and there's always a big argument. A lot of top advisors think that active can beat passive, but we know, at least personally, from our own investing experience, every time we touch something, we get hammered. So, we just prefer to say <laughs> passive. But what does all your data and research indicate? Yeah, look, I, I'm not dogmatic about this. I, I, I tend to say I, I don't have a strong view, um, active passive, but I'm evidence-based uh, in everything that, that we do. The, the company is always evidence-based. And all the data says that for retail investors, for individuals like you and me, uh, after costs, there's really nothing better you can do than invest in a globally diversified index portfolio. Um, there are some new low-cost products, and uh, and they're more maybe uh, quasi-active. I think the the line between active and passive is being blurred over time as technology mm-hmm. takes over more and more of the job of uh, quote active management. And this may be a niche view, but I think of index funds um, themselves as uh, as as an outgrowth of that, uh, or sort of an, an early smart beta product. I mean, to build the first index, which we think of as passive you had to decide how to construct it and people decided well market cap weighted might be the right way to do it but that itself is a it's a decision that's encoded and is traded by uh, by an algorithm and uh, and you can make those you can advance those algorithms and you can say well we want to include uh, price earnings ratios in our algorithm or we want to include dividend yields in our algorithm and you can make that more and more sophisticated or more, or more and more complicated mm-hmm. depending on your point of view it doesn't it, as long as there's good evidence that uh, what you're doing is reasonable and, and, and provides good risk adjusted returns it could be appropriate for, for a portfolio like it and we we had Meb in favor on the show a few about a month and a half ago and he was telling us a really funny story that Fidelity did a big research project of all of their customers and all their accounts and found that the best performing accounts over a 20-year period were accounts that had either been forgotten about or customers that had passed away and thus left them completely untouched. So I think that was pretty good, uh, pretty good learning for us all. That's incredible. I heard something similar, I think, maybe coming out of Vanguard, too. I love those kinds of stories. And Meb is a real intellect. He's uh, always, always fun to listen to. Yeah, absolutely agree. What opportunities are there for international investors either now or in the future to use Betterment? So today, uh, you can live abroad, but you have to to have a U.S. address and bank account in order to open a Betterment account. So for uh, soldiers living abroad, we open many accounts, things like this. But we can't do it without those things because due to due to the laws and and, um, and our own internal uh, security processes, we have to verify your identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to know who you are, and it's just not efficient for us to do that if if you're not a uh, if you don't have a U.S. address and bank account. There's so much opportunity here in the U.S. to grow that we've got our, our focus on uh, continuing to invest in what U.S. customers need. And U.S. customer needs are not totally unique from others, but they are different. I mean, we have different regulations. We can invest in different things here. We have different cash transfer systems mm-hmm. than investors in U.K. or China or um, India. 
those other markets, we get inquiries every day. In fact, multiple times a day from, from people there who say, I would love for you to bring Betterment to here, or mm -hmm. I am thinking about starting the Betterment of here, uh, and can we part? <laughs> um, every day, multiple times a day. So I, there's obvious opportunity there, but we tend to take the long view about mm -hmm. that opportunity. I think it's not going away. Some would say, oh, you got to get out there and claim territory and get your brand out. I think that's not exactly understanding what we're doing and how transformative it is. It's not just about getting your name out there. We're building an understanding of customer behavior. We're building an understanding of the algorithms that uh, will power the future of financial services to make it more automated, to make it something that you can not have to worry so much about. Mm -hmm. And those are will cross borders over time, and those learnings will, will help us uh, in other geographies over time. We just need to be patient uh, and, and invest where our efforts can have the highest return in the short term. So speaking of worry, I was curious if there's any opportunity. I'm, I'm not as familiar with, uh, put it this way, I've never looked at my Betterment account when the market's been bad. When the market's great, it looks awesome. You have all these green lines and green numbers and everything's rosy. But let's say we go into another, you know, a 2008 or something, right? When there's a lot of emotion in the market. I'm sure there's a lot of emotion in the market during Brexit and other events. Do you guys have a plan for how you can, like in the future, even today, how you can help to be a more emotional or psychological advisor and giving people guidance on not to sell or, you know, referencing historical data that says things should ba bounce back or even have someone that you can call to to kind of talk through things because again the emotional side of things especially with the internet having things just one or two clicks away from making a trade it's why my e-trade account is down probably 10 years in a row <laughs> <laughs> so I, I know that feeling um so all of the above to go back to the to the story we were talking about mm -hmm. from the beginning i've been interested in in behavior and how we can help people make better decisions in uh in all environments and particularly down environments where people mm -hmm. may be feeling panicked so the site has lots of uh of behavioral feedback built into it we have a great uh, team of behavioral economists here innovating and, and improving those features so that we focus you on the right things. We talk about whether you're on track or your goals or not. And even if the market's down 40 or 50%, mm -hmm. you can still be on track to your goals because we've invested you in an appropriate way, uh, given the time horizon of your goals, given and, and maybe the, the right mix of stocks and bonds um, to, to reduce your risk and so on. That helps uh, a lot, and it means that people don't really call us, but we have we have live people you can talk to seven days a week. We've got CFPs, we've got financial experts on the phones who are willing to talk to customers whenever they need it. And so the, the truth is that people don't end up calling us, um, and, uh, and part of that is because of the, the way that we position information in the site. Part of it's because in, when there is market news, we're pushing information out to customers. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and we do that in a, in a test and learn way. We understand how customers are reacting to that information and continue to improve it. And, and we'll talk about staying the course or we'll talk about what happens, you know, can you predict when the market's at a top? Can you predict when the market's at a bottom? And the answer is generally no. Um, and we uh, so we, and we also we give things in the moment. So let's say you're thinking about changing your allocation. You're going to move everything to cash because you're scared about uh, mm -hmm. what the market's doing. We'll tell you before you make that trade 
what taxes you would pay. Mm -hmm. And when we show customers that information, we call this feature tax impact preview, 75% of customers decide not to go through with the transaction. And I, I find that really compelling because right. it means customers are not only saving on the taxes, which is great, but they're not market timing, which mm -hmm. uh, is even a bigger drag on, on returns. Really cool. I like it a lot. We will have to take a look at, actually, the market's down a little bit. Maybe I'll, I'll sneak into my, my Betterman account this afternoon and take a look. I try to stay away from this stuff as much as possible because I'm on my computer all day. It's all just way too easy to, to start logging into accounts and looking. But it's good to know that I, I think, at least going forward, a lot of Betterman investors I would imagine are long-term investors, so they're not they're not day trading. Is that cr like they're not in and out of their accounts on like a weekly basis, right? Yeah, it's a the vast majority of our customers are uh, more set and forget style investors. They may be checking in, but they're not making changes. Gotcha. So for people that are typically comfortable with investing in a basket allocation or maybe like a, a four a four fund allocation through a low cost provider of any sort, Vanguard or whoever, what additional assistance or benefits can Betterment give versus someone who's just kind of setting it and forgetting it over the course of five years or longer? Yeah, I mean, we do lots more than, uh, say, Vanguard or what you can do if you're uh, even a very engaged Vanguard investor. Um, for our for our customers, uh, we save you uh, 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 a huge amount in taxes. So we do things to uh, coordinate across your accounts, to tax loss harvest in your accounts that lead to really significant gains in returns. I mean, it pays for the fees that we charge several times over just in the tax savings that we get you alone. And that's, it. we do things that you just can't do on your own. I mean, it's, it's impossible to, uh, to, to manage your, your uh, accounts as actively mm -hmm. or to monitor them as, as, uh, as efficiently as, as we do it. We help you, you know, avoid wash sales and rebalance with every transaction that comes in or out. And like, this is just, it's obvious stuff that everyone should have. And of course, no, no other firm provides all, all these services in the way that we do. And it, I think one of the hardest things is just kind of educating people about all this stuff because there's so much, you know, investing is such a sticky thing and it's such a, it's such a slow moving thing because it is complicated. And we're trying to make it simple. We're trying to make it really easy, but you still have to tell, you know, talk to people for uh, for a long time, and sometimes people have to hear about it multiple times before they get it and they understand um, all of these benefits. Beyond taxes, I think there's several other reasons that people uh, come to Betterment. So there's, of course, the better returns through taxes. People use us because we are their central financial relationship. Mm -hmm. They like to see everything in one place. And so through um, through our dashboard, you know, I can manage my bank accounts, my credit cards. It's all there in one place. Uh, and so I'm getting advice about everything at once. And I see my total net worth in one view. I really like that. I used to mm -hmm. use Mint.com, but yeah, now yeah. it's better Mint for, for that. People use this because we tell them, uh, how much to save and in what accounts. We'll tell you what you need for retirement. We'll tell you how much to put into your Roth, how much to put into your traditional, how much to put into your 401k. Do you need all of those or not? This is advice that everyone should have. And even if you think you know it, it's, it's great to have uh, uh, you know our, our, our second uh, opinion on it. And, and it helps you coordinate and balance those over time and tells you when you need to make changes and so on. That's really valuable advice. I love uh, it. And it's something that, that other firms will give you. John, thanks so much for coming on the show, sharing your experience with 
growing betterment. Your personal story is very inspiring to any of us. I just want to uh, wrap up with one final question. Which, wh- what advice do, do you have now that you wish you knew when you were 20, 20 years ago when you started investing? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> one, one thing. I'm sure there's a lot of takeaways, but I promise we'll keep you under 30 minutes. So. <laughs> I think I wish, if anything, that I'd gotten started on, on betterment earlier because you know um, there's so much still to do, and I, I, I just wish I'd started uh, 10 years earlier down this path. Well, we're all rooting for betterment, and we're all appreciative of the service and uh, your inspiring story. So just want to thank you again. And listeners, we will um, we'll answer any questions you have in the group. John, thanks again. And uh, have a great day in NYC. Thanks, Sam. Great talking with you. Wow. I'm so excited that we were able to get John Stein on the episode for that long. I- I've seen some of his interviews. And normally, you know, most shows, even like NBC, they, they have him on for like five or eight minutes we were able to get him on for an entire half an hour and really have him you know, dive deep into the story and why he started Betterment as well as answer some questions. So, uh, Sam, that, that was an awesome interview. Yeah, and thanks, big thanks to John for coming on. I mean, he, this guy is so busy. He's in New York running one of the hottest fintech companies in the, in the entire world. Um, so really appreciate him taking the time, coming on and sharing the story. And, uh, man, I got a really warm feeling about Betterment and the reasons behind it and... and um, you know, hearing John's story, just, you know, it's inspiring just to hear these these entrepreneurs that w- went after something and um, and are clearly making a difference. And I think when you, you know, really you know, listen to someone for half an hour and you get to know them, you can kind of get a feel, you know, way more than just dollars and cents, you know, just like percentages and fees and things like that on this is a company that you want to invest in. So, uh you have invested your own money now in Betterment, correct? Yeah, just recently, actually. Um, I just pulled up the account. So when we had Meb Faber on way back when, or maybe it wasn't too long ago, somewhere, what was it, episode 15 or something? We all love Meb. Great episode. Super smart guy. And we came away thinking, like, how, how can we invest alongside of Meb? You know, how can we, how can we, invest in some of these portfolio allocations that he's managing and they didn't have a really easy way to do that so they did a deal with betterment that essentially meb's company cambria investments is doing an automated robo advisory fund through uh, a portfolio through betterment and so i got an email about a week ago from from cambria investments and i'm like this is awesome right like it's slightly different than I think a, a typical Betterment portfolio because it also invests in an ETF that is managed by Cambria. So I'm pretty excited about this. Like you know, first off, I'm excited to, to invest in Betterment and um, and to be part of something to have invested in something with a guy like that John has built because I'm I'm just you know I, I think what he they put together there is awesome. It's really exciting to hear the growth in robo advisory over the last five years. Like I didn't even know that robo advisories existed back in 2010, uh, and that's I guess when you know Betterment was really emerging. And now we are sitting here uh, coming close to 2017. We're just getting our heads around it. Uh, but my account, so I I put in money. And I'm actually pretty pleased because the market is down from when I invested. The market was at uh, 18.5 or eight, it was at its peak when I put money in, of course. Uh, and the market's now at about, or let's say the Dow Jones is now at 18.3. And my account's up a little bit. So 
I'm happy to see that. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're going to track this. This is all the, these things that we're going to track and compare against other things that we're investing in and, you know, and be able to share the details, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah, that's super cool that, you know, you put your money into that. If you guys want to listen to the episode, it was episode 15 with Meb Faber mm-hmm. on building the all seasons portfolio, which is the, you know, the, the kind of the master all. Mm-hmm. You know, catch all that uh, Tony Robbins talked about in Money Master Game. Um, so, as far as robo investors are concerned, you know, Betterment is one of the largest companies that, and I think Wealthfront are, are competing mm-hmm. for number one and two. Um, mm-hmm. So, there's tons of pros and cons for both, but but even before we get there, let's you know, kind of just talk about how if you either like you know, basically, if you invest in stocks individually. You know, it's guaranteed that you're either going to have a much higher success rate or a much lower success rate. It's almost kind of like one of those mm-hmm. things where you know individual stocks can be super high risk or super high, you know, uh, with high reward or uh, just just super risky. With mm-hmm. all robo investments, whether you choose you know Betterment or a different company, it's always going to be you know one of those things where it's it's going to be more kind of automated, but also kind of I, I think it's safer, and I and I also yeah. think that. You know, Betterman's biggest goal is for people not to lose money. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, th- the only, you know, even, ne- you know, slightly negative thing I've ever heard about, about Betterman are, are two things. Uh, we're robo-advisors in general. So one is you can potentially not make as much money as you would have if you had invested directly into the stock market. And one of the reasons for that is a lot of times they lean very heavily on things like bonds. Um, so, you know, there's no way, even if you put yourself in the highest you know, risk bracket during the survey, mm-hmm. they're going to force you to buy some bonds. And I think the reason why they do that is because if the stock market, you know, has a big downturn uh, in the future, they don't want their, you know, um, their clients you know, losing a ton of money because it looks bad for business. You know, I'm sure the news outlets, Fox News, CNBC, they're all going to jump on it, even though it wouldn't be their fault, you know, it'd just be the stock market going down. But um, they don't want people kind of jumping ship and abandoning a ship if that happens. And that's why they force you to buy bonds, uh, even though, you know, you, you claim yourself as the highest risk profile. Yeah, I, th- I think also, you know, they are, in a sense, okay, it's it's algorithms, but they as a company are advisors, right? You can pick up the phone, you can talk to them. And I just don't think there's that many advisors out there that would ever say, okay, I'm going to take your money and I'll invest it and we're going to go 100% stocks. You might find a few, but I think that's that's not just true with robo-advisory. I think you would find that with almost any financial advisor in the world. They would always want to put at least a, a percentage of your money in fixed income and or bonds, et cetera. Um, and yeah, and I also agree with, with everything you said about, you know, it's in a lot of cases for a lot of people, it's better not to lose money than to make a lot of money. Yeah. So I think, you know, Betterment and RoboVisions in general uh, are going to be good for people who, you know, want to save up for their for the future uh, while having growth, but kind of limiting the amount of money that they can kind of potentially lose. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that, you know, that's a great service. Um, I would say for people who, you know, want to just, you know, they don't, that they want to be more risky, uh, mm-hmm. I would, you know, I would say for those people, you know, th- using a robo advisor is probably not the best thing in the world. Um, the other thing that they, that I've heard um, is a potential downside is even though the fees itself are very low for robo advisors, mm-hmm. especially Betterment, that they there is a cost of you know making that transactional fee. So every time they let's say they um, 
they you know they rebalance your your new portfolio or uh, add in things like tax you know tax loss harvesting that you're not actually seeing that that trade fee um, that's something that I want to deep you know dive a little bit deeper into because I actually don't know too much about that I don't know if uh, you know obviously they're doing that for a reason because they want to try to grow your portfolio but I wonder you know if a lot of people aren't thinking about that fee as in you know versus if you let's say you had just bought a uh, hundred shares of Vanguard and just left it. Yeah, I don't know that there is a fee. Uh, at least I would be surprised if if there was a fee. I thought their only fee was the fifth point one five. Well, I think Betterman's point one five, Wealthfront's point two five. That was their only take. I don't think there's actually a fee on all the the transactions in between for tax loss harvesting and stuff. But yeah, we should definitely do a deep dive and see if we we uncover anything. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely not a fee on Betterment's part. I was thinking more: mm-hmm. is there a fee for for them buying that stock on your behalf or that that fund on your behalf? Mm, no, there shouldn't be. I don't, not because a lot of these funds are just like going through uh, Vanguard or, or or something very similar, right? That's definitely true. And I, I think the other thing we can look at is. You know the funds that they're buying. You know, are there you know fees in those? So like, let's say they're buying as Vanguard funds. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I know for, for example, VTI has a very low you know um, uh, like cost basis at the end of the year. Yeah. I think it's like point zero one five or something. But mm-hmm. I, I know that you know for the other funds, I don't know what those fees are, and I'm assuming you know you're paying for that in, in some way. Yeah, so we we can just take a look. I, what we can do is we can do a deep dive into my portfolio on Betterment. It actually there's a lot more funds than it, than in a typical Wealthfront one. That might be because it's going through Cambria, but it's, let's see, it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. 14 different funds um, and it looks like the average fees of the funds per year are around I'm gonna say like 30 to 40 percent which isn't astronomical but it's also not you know 0.05 like you get some, in sometimes uh, some cases admiral shares through Vanguard so uh, let's see total uh, yeah about 40 40 percent average uh, fees I just saw at the bottom so there is there's some cost and then you add on uh, betterments fee so that's basically a total of 0.55 uh, it certainly beats the heck out of a financial advisor that's going to charge you one percent and then throw you in a bunch of, of uh, of uh, mutual funds that are another one point five percent so it's it's night and day compared to doing it that way. Um, I also agree with you if you want to be super risky, you know go straight stocks and you can also do both right you can have a betterment fund and you can have you know a vanguard portfolio and you can also have an e trade account or or any type of stock account where you just go out and pick a few funds that are really aggressive or um, pick individual stocks like I do and continuously get hammered on them. But I like having fun with it and I like betting on companies. So one big benefit of RoboVisors is the fact that they will auto withdraw um, you know, whatever you set it to. So let's say you want to set $3,000 a month. It'll just automatically invest that every single month. Mm-hmm. One of the big downsides of Vanguard, which I hope they, they change, is I'm not able to just automatically buy you know, three thousand dollars worth of VTI every single month on the same day of the month. I have to manually log in, and the problem with that is, even though I'm very you know unemotional when it comes to buying it, it's still you know me clicking a you know a couple buttons and t- basically taking out my wallet. And I think people can get really emotional when either the the, <laughs> the price is a little bit high that month, or you're like, ah, oh, maybe I'll skip it, maybe I won't buy it this month, or if it's like really low that month, and you know, and you start getting crazy with it. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And the 
with Vanguard, so you're you bought VTI, which is an ETF, right? Yes, correct. So if you buy the funds instead of the ETF, um, you'd have to do a dive into the fees and see if it's a wash or not. Then it can automatically pull from your bank on a certain day. But for some reason, with the ETFs, you have to do that extra click because in my Vanguard account, I have maybe three or four ETFs, and if I want to load those up, I have to go in and do them manually, like you said. But if you buy the funds, it can automatically pull from your account. But it's it's true about the what you said, the emotions. And I, it still messes with me because I almost never let my automatic investments kick in. Instead, I see a dip in the market and I'm like, okay, I'll go put money in now. Or at the end of the month when my money's supposed to go and if the market's at its high, I'm like, eh, I think I'll just cancel this order for this month, right? <laughs> so it's too touchy-feely still. And and I, I've gotten a lot of uh, a lot of joy, I would say, out of these these uh, these robo advisories because you because it's not easy to manipulate your portfolio much. There's less of a sensation to actually go in and play with things, right? It's just it is there. You can change it a little bit, but because you can't manually select which funds you want to add more to. It just takes a little, you know, like Vanguard, it's, it's fun and easy to go in and, and play with it. And that's not what you're supposed to do, right? Every single person out there basically says passive is better than active. So, uh, so I'm, I'm really bullish on these things, at least for me personally, because I know how touchy-feely I am and how I'm in front of the computer way too much a day. And, you know, in turbulent markets, I'm, I'm definitely in my portfolios looking at them and thinking of making changes. So, these are good for me. I'm very happy with them to date. And I think the big thing is going to come at the end of the year when we actually take a look at our, our individual accounts versus our robo-advisory accounts or say our Vanguard accounts versus our robo-advisory accounts and see and see how they performed. Yeah, definitely. And I think another big part of it is, so the other you know potential negative that, that I've heard um, or was a bit of a controversy is when uh, there's a BRICSX and Everybody with the Brexit, yeah. yeah, and there was like you know, and the stock market dropped because of it. There, you know, there's a bit of a panic. Um, mm-hmm. CNBC had John Stein go on their show, and they you know they, they basically you know barraged him. I think it was like eight to one or something. There was eight mm-hmm. people uh, versus him, uh, you know, saying um, that betterment you know shut down trading for for I think a few hours or like a window mm-hmm. during that time. And you know why did they do that? And from John's point of view or Betterman's point of view, it was because they wanted to protect their their clients. I mean, I, I think from a company point of view, you know, they don't want their clients losing money because it looks bad on them. You know, mm-hmm. and they know that you know people get emotional when you know the stock market drops. You know, and people are going to be tempted to sell. And even though it'll most likely recover again, uh, as you know, as history do, you know does, uh, if people mm-hmm. exit and they lose money, it kind of gives the company a bad reputation. And right. I think CNBC's point was, you know, it was saying, well, you know, even though you might have good intentions, is that your is that your job to kind of big brother people and and you know and not let them um, make potentially bad decisions? Uh, and even on, I guess, even a bigger flip is, you know, what if people wanted to buy more during that time? Right. Yeah, that's a, it's a t- it's a very tough situation, and you can look at it from both sides, and ultimately. With the markets recovering, you know, you, a lot of people are going to be thanking Betterment for for basically coaching them and, and not allowing them to get out. And you know, I've saw so many people, including my parents, my grandma, and the little money that I had in the market in two thousand eight, get totally wiped out. That 
you know, one of this, we talked about this on the show as well, is I wish someone had been strong with my parents, uh, grandparents and myself and, you know, potentially locked this out of the account. And of course, if that happened during the time, you'd be screaming, kicking, cursing and everything else. But, you know, when you look at the damage that was done because of people's emotions, um, uh, you know, unsophisticated investors' emotions, not listening to their advisors and selling at the bottom. I mean, the damage is, is massive. You know, it's, it's retirement versus non-retirement, uh, potentially for 20 or 25 years for, um, for, for my parents and, and my, gram, my grandma and everything. So there is some element of being a real advisor in those situations and coaching people through tough times. Yeah, I think a great idea would be so during good times or when you sign up, there should almost be a checkbox saying, you know, and where you're not emotional, things aren't going, you know, crazy. Yeah. And mm-hmm. have and basically be able to opt in or opt out of a a service where you know you can basically you know they can word something like you know in case of a downturn um, do you want us <laughs> to kind of protect you know protect your money right and not right, sell right. how am I feeling yeah you know yeah and, no, that's that's great yeah you know and I would check that because I would say you know especially if it, if, if it was worded and you know set up in a way where it says only sell. Um, if I don't lose money. So like click a box where, you know, saying, do not let me lose money. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people, when they're logical and they're not being emotional, they will click that box saying, that makes absolutely sense. Don't let me ever sell, you know, and lose money. You know, only, you know, maybe you can even uh, allow the trade or, you know, to go into queue and say, okay, I'm panicking or I need to buy a house or you know, I need to buy something. Um, let me queue up my, my trades, you know, to be able to sell mm-hmm. so I can get some cash. But I don't necessarily need to do it in this 30 minute window when it might be super low and everyone's panicking. Let me just queue it up. So it'll, you know, it'll sell when I'm at a break even point or, um, you know, maybe even at, you know, an, another point where you make a little bit of money from it. Yeah, this business, and I think robo advisories as a whole are is so ripe for a good integration with artificial intelligence. Uh, to be able to really understand people's moods. So like if you take a couple of variables, let's say like a bad market, the market's down 5% or 10% and someone's logging in, you know, you, you cuz you'd be able to track when people are logging in. If someone's logging in on average once a month to their account and then all of a sudden the market's down 10% and they've logged in five times in a day. You know, with enough data, you should be able to say, okay, this is an emotional investor. Um, maybe we should give them a call, right? Or maybe we should present some type of statistics on their dashboard that's, that would give them some reassurance about when the market could recover. So how many times in, in the history of the stock market has the market been down 10% and then recovered 30 you know, within 30 days later. And, and that type of data, I think, would be so valuable to show if the market's down 10%, you log in, hi, customer, you know, the market's experiencing a bit of a correction. This has happened 462 times over the last 50 years. And on average, the recovery time is 45 days or something, you know, something like that, that just gives people a little bit of a statistical view. So they don't go in and think the world's coming to an end and, and make a bad decision. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, I, and I really believe that, you know, just educating people about that, giving them options is gonna be great. If anything, you know, if they really wanted to, um, you know, 
allow people to do whatever they want, even though it's a bad mistake. What they could do is they can have like four different like continue buttons <laughs> where they pop <laughs> up and they just kind of educate you through like, are you sh- really are you sure you want to do this? Here's here's some information. Are you really sure this is what's going to happen? Are you really really sure this was going to happen? And, and I might just piss off you know that might piss off some people. They might just yeah. kind of go through it without um without actually reading or, or watching the video and i think that most people when they are emotional and they're panicking uh they probably will just get annoyed and they probably will just skip through it and, and not think logically it's so hard to convince yeah. someone i mean if anyone who's ever ha- you know had a fight with a girlfriend or a wife when they're being emotional it's it's really hard to talk any logic into someone even if you're right when they're mad yeah absolutely and, and it also depends a lot on i think on the the investment experience of that investor i know i mean i'm still emotional today and i've been uh, when it comes to investment well in general but when it comes to investment decisions i still am and i've been investing now for 12 years but for sure when i was in college and i had made my first few thousand dollars and i put it in the market and you log in i logged in in 2008 and my account was down like 40 percent and I, I literally thought the world was coming to an end. Uh, and that now, you know, that happens in that type of loss can happen to us in a day. And we, you know, we're much more uh, tolerant to this type of thing. So we've been through it. But so many people now, you know, the millenniums, uh, millennials coming out, they're going to start investing through platforms like Betterment and, and uh, Wealthfront and other robo-advisories. And that's going to be their first type of investment. And when they log in and they see that five or ten percent correction, you know they're going to need they're going to need a lot of handholding. Yeah, so I, I definitely agree, and and I think you know what I kind of want to wrap it up with is who is Betterment Service great for? You know, there's going to be pros and cons for everything, and you know that's kind of the whole point of this podcast is to explore mm-hmm. different alternatives from people. But I would say definitely for sure, uh, Betterment would be good for people who you know are more concerned about you know uh, n- not losing money or not forgetting uh, to mm-hmm. invest uh, and having a very I would say like a very upward trend uh, with their money in general. I mean, obviously, you know, there's going to be a lot of factors, but you know, they're not looking for the the biggest risk, biggest reward. Um, they don't really you know trust themselves uh, emotionally they rather have it you know be automated where they don't have to log in every single month and and click the buttons to, to buy um you know people that want to be able to set it and forget it i think betterment's great for them and what makes betterment better than wealthfront and the other robo advisors uh is for people who either have a hundred thousand uh, dollars or more to no sorry was it ten thousand or a hundred thousand i think it's a hundred thousand um, dollars mm-hmm. right now uh, or if you think that you're going to eventually have a hundred thousand dollars or more um, in the you know in the next year or two, because their fees significantly get lower once you get to that six figure mark. Yeah, I agree totally. And I'll just echo the, the echo what you said about who's a good customer for a robo advisory. I think anyone who's got at least a six or seven year investment window, which would be you know mid to long term, especially for people long term. And they're content with trying to get optimized around getting 8% returns. You're not going to get filthy rich off these things. Um, but I think it's a good piece of anyone's overall investment portfolio for the long term. Yeah, definitely. Because I think, you know, trying to get that extra 2%, you know, trying to go uh, above 8%, you also bring yourself into into more risk. And, you know, risk not just in terms of the investment itself, but also risk that, you will get emotional. You'll forget about it. You'll you know you'll miss a few months or six months or a year of investing because you just you know 
either you know either because the market is different or because you just kind of forget to log in. So I really like Robo Investors um, for that feature. Even for me, even though I'm very good at logging in every month and buying shares of index <laughs> funds, like even then I I mess up. And you know this right. is something I'm thinking about all the time. So if you, you know if you're just a normal person that you're not thinking about this you know 24 seven, I really think Robo Investors. Um, you know even though there are a smaller chance of getting super rich from it is way better than not doing anything or having the chance of messing up. Good advice and good way to wrap up the episode. So everybody, hope you enjoyed that episode with John Stein. We certainly did. And we have lots of great episodes coming up for the month of October and November already lined up. So stay tuned. Leave us your comments, your feedback, and we'll uh, catch you guys in the Boss Lounge on Facebook. Yeah. And also, if you guys do want to sign up for a Benjamin account, we'll have a link uh in our show notes, which will give us credit for referring you um, if you wanted to, to sign up. And that is it. So thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, big thank you to Betterment and John Stein for coming on the show and see you guys all next week. Thanks for listening to the Best Like a Boss podcast. Join our mailing list at investlikeaboss.com to get exclusive access to our insider investment portfolios and our private members forum. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends and leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps more than you know. See you guys next week.